Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear episode 6 of my book, Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. And today we're going to conclude chapter 3 of this book. In my last episode, I focused on how ancient people tried to find the cycles of the moon and sun and how they went about mythologizing them. And while episode 5 was more dedicated to the moon, episode 6 today is going to be more dedicated to the sun. Obviously, in both episodes, both the moon and the sun are important, but it's interesting to see how at certain times and in certain ways we put a focus on the moon, and at other times or in other ways we put the focus instead on the sun. People needed the sun to get more precise for our calendars. Instead of being okay with the time being off by a few days every year, in this episode we focus on how human civilization wanted to get the most out of not just every day of the year, but even every second, and the difficult effort it took in order to build a civilization that was precise down to the minute. But of course, in order for us to have done that, we initially needed the help of the ancient people that we have been focusing on so much over the last few episodes. Also in this episode, I'm going to focus on the equinoxes and the solstices and how important they've been for all of humanity. I'm going to talk about the cultural celebrations around these four important pinpoints each year, as well as some mythology connected to them. I'm also going to focus on the two calendars that we've used for the last few thousand years of civilization. First, the Julian calendar, and then the Gregorian calendar. And I just wanted to do a little shout-out to Jeff Matthews, who helped me figure out some interesting aspects related to Aloysius Lilius, or as he's also known, Luigi Lilio, because Lilius was the man who created the Gregorian calendar, and yet there is almost nothing that remains about his life or what kind of a person he was, despite solving one of the most difficult problems in all of human history. Jeff Matthews is someone who made a blog post about the Carafa Castle in Italy and was able to help me understand that there are some special connections between Aloysius Lilius and the Carafa Castle, and I share them in this episode. Unfortunately, I do not have a lot of information related to this connection, so if anyone does know a little bit more, because I only used the internet and Jeff Matthews' knowledge, who I reached out to personally, to 
figure out what connection Lilius had to the Carafa Castle. And Matthew said that there are likely other resources in other languages that have more information related to Lilius that are just not in English. And therefore, that's as far as I'm able to go. But if anyone finds or knows of any additional information about Aloysius Lilius, please reach out and share it with me because I think there is precious little attention on him, even though there should be a little bit more to celebrate him and his huge achievement for humanity. You can reach out to me at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. You can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world for updates. And if you enjoy this podcast, please like, rate, and review. And of course, if you enjoy it enough to donate, I give a free PDF copy of my book so you don't have to wait for future episodes to find out what I write about next. In the PDF copies of my book, I have pictures and diagrams that help really elaborate on what I share in this podcast. And I put a lot of time into it, so I think it's definitely worth it in addition above and beyond the podcast. Now that the housekeeping is over, let's get into episode six of Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. Chapter 3, Part 3, Solstices, Equinoxes, and the Human Psyche. The moon is dependent on the sun to shine, so it only makes sense that the lunar deities all give way to solar ones. And as important as the lunar calendar was, it was worthless without having the sun to correct its behavior to get it back aligned with the seasons. The moon was treated as the errant one, and astronomers appointed it convoluted remedies, such as solar resets, intercalations, and metonic cycles to help correct its cycle for millennia. By the time of the Roman Empire in 45 BCE, there was finally a breakthrough in the calendar conundrum. Finally, 8,000 years after the hunter-gatherers at Warren Field and 3,000 years after the Babylonians, the calendar reached a new level of precision. Up until that point, the traditional Roman calendar was based on the same lunar year that had been used for millennia, and in the age of globalized empire, it was no longer acceptable to be off by several days each year. Julius Caesar actively sought out help to finally figure out a calendar that would align with the seasons with more precision as the needs of the empire demanded it. Caesar turned to the astronomer and mathematician Sausagenes of Alexandria to help solve this problem. 
Even though by this point the powers of Greece, Babylonia, Persia, and Egypt would never rise again to their previous greatness, it's worth noting that Caesar looked for an Egyptian scholar, not Roman, to fix the issue of the calendar. Sausagines still held troves from antiquity that had disappeared centuries before, Thales now 500 years gone. Sausagines was tasked with the impossible by one of the most powerful emperors in history to provide him with a precise and user-friendly calendar. Sausagines must have anguished over his options, but he ultimately chose a solar Egyptian calendar that was known for its elegant simplicity and accuracy as his proposal to Caesar. After careful consideration, it seemed that a 365-day calendar coupled with a leap day every four years would, more or less, keep the seasons aligned with the months of the year better than any lunar calendar could. But Sausagines didn't come up with this calendar himself. He had to look back centuries to find the suitable candidate to run the modern Roman Empire. The definitive creator of what would become the foundational calendar to what we use today has been lost to history. However, one possibility is that Sausagines found the calendar from an even older Egyptian astronomer and mathematician named Eratosthenes. Eratosthenes headed the famous Library of Alexandria in the 3rd century BCE, roughly 400 years before Sausagines, but 200 years after Thales. Like Thales, Eratosthenes was fascinated by the secrets of the universe and made one of the first projections of the circumference of the Earth using the summer solstice. While the exact circumference that Eratosthenes found is not known for certain, the range of his projection was still the most accurate for thousands of years to come. Using the depth of a well in a southern Egyptian city and the length of a shadow produced by a column in Alexandria on the summer solstice, Eratosthenes came up with the circumference of about 250,000 stadies, with one stadion being the lost circumference of an ancient stadium, which is the reason why it's impossible for us to know his exact calculations. Eratosthenes changed his final calculations to about 252,000 stades for his circumference of the Earth because it would be more easily divisible in the base 60 number system that was still well used at the time. Eratosthenes is still remembered for several contributions to math, the most famous being how to distill prime numbers out of the number system, using his namesake Sieve of Eratosthenes. Despite adding the 
ancient world's most famous library and making fairly accurate estimates on the size of the earth, he was often considered only second best when compared to other famous scholars of the day. Yet 400 years later, Sosagenes may have lifted Eratosthenes' calendar from obscurity to be presented to and implemented by the mighty Caesar. Caesar took the calendar discovered by Sosagenes and adopted it as the official calendar of the Roman Empire, changing the name of the month Quintilis to July in honor of himself for making this reform. The Julian calendar became so successful that remnants of those ancient Roman months are still etched into our modern calendar today. Quintilis was the fifth month of the Roman calendar, indicated by the Latin root quint. September was the seventh month, October was the eighth, November was the ninth, and December was the tenth month. But today they are the ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth months of the year, respectively. So what happened? Their Latin names don't make sense for the order that they're in because the old Roman calendar had only ten months that were based upon the agricultural year, with the times roughly corresponding to today's January and February left more open-ended and finagled to help keep the lunar calendar on track with the seasons. But Sausagene's calendar now gave the empire a full 12 months of which every day would be accounted for every year, making the one extra day of the leap year every four years the only real change that anyone would have to pay attention to. The precision of what is now called the Julian calendar, coupled with the power of the Roman Empire, forced Mediterranean civilizations into a new era of time standardization, unrivaled in the history of the world. Shoring up over ten missing days from the year significantly balanced the month's relationship to the year nicely, and we as a species left the moon to meander through the sky seemingly at random, our time now locked strictly to the sun and seasons. The precision of the Julian calendar was enough to far outlast the 1,000-year reign of the Roman Empire. The calculations behind Sausagene's calendar were so precise that it solved the problem of keeping the months with the seasons for the next 1,500 years. If we give the average person during that millennia and a half the generous average lifespan of 60 years, there were about 25 generations of people who were able to live and die using the Julian calendar without much variation from year to year at all. It seems that humanity had finally pinned the universe's strange machinations down. 
This highly precise mathematical calendar came from the work of antiquity scholars in a civilization that was born at the end of the Green Sahara and went on to compete as one of the world's greatest ancient empires and longest-lasting civilizations. For all of Rome's modern might, they needed centuries-old mathematics to bring order to their empire. The key to success for the Julian calendar was to pay attention to those special days known as the equinoxes. Twice a year, no matter where you stand on the planet, the sun and the earth line up near perfectly enough to give 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. The equinoxes, along with the solstices, the longest and shortest days of the year, have been the four natural dates that would have been most noticeable to ancient people, especially for anyone with any distance from the equator. The ability to line up these four predictable dates so that they always occurred on about the same day every year was likely the goal for Sausagines. The importance of the equinoxes and the solstices must have felt like an encrypted message from the universe to the ancient people. A mysterious cosmic clock ticking four times a year on an ancient and unknown timescale that they could always get close to decrypting, but never quite right. What these four days said about the relationship between the sun and the earth was not certain to them. But our collective ancestors recognized that it was significant all the same. Today, we know that the equinoxes and solstices stem from the Earth not being perfectly aligned with the Sun most of the year. The Earth has a tilt to it that has the North Pole leaning an extra 23.5 degrees forward into the Sun during its summertime bathing the Arctic with 24 hours of daylight. As the Earth continues to round the Sun, the effect of the Northern Hemisphere's tilt disappears because it is neither leaning into the Sun nor away from it, like the Sun hitting the Earth's profile, shading exactly half of it, regardless of its tilt. And then, without fail, at about noon on the autumn equinox, the sun would just barely dip behind the horizon at the Arctic, not to return for the next six months. The twilight lingers for weeks afterwards before plunging the whole Arctic into 11 weeks of complete darkness. As the winter solstice arrives in the northern hemisphere, the Arctic spends the full 24 hours gazing out into the blackness of space, without even the slightest hint of twilight for months. To spend the winter at either of the poles is like a slow descent to the bottom of the ocean before being lifted back up to the surface six months later. It closes the poles off to any living creature that can't stand the frigid darkness for months on end. But, predictably, 
at about noon on the spring equinox, the bounty of the sunlight returns, piercing the horizon just enough to cast a long horizontal shadow that will continue to shrink until the summer solstice has the sun bright and overhead once again. With the return to the summer solstice, the cycle has been completed, and it will start with the same spooky precision all over again. Naturally, the solstices are flipped in the South Pole, basking the Antarctic in sunlight during the northern winter and draped in icy darkness during the northern summer. Like yin and yang, the poles will forever remain opposites, switching between who gets to bask in the glow of the eternal sun and who faces out into the glittering darkness of eternity. There have been countless ways that we, as a species, have celebrated and honored these special days over the course of human history. Celebrations on these four days are ubiquitous and fundamental in nearly all cultures found across the world. Solstice has Latin roots that literally means sun stopped, and equinox has a literal translation to equal nights. For the constant variability and change that occurs across the earth in all other ways, these four days a year were one of the few things that we could depend on to happen for sure. In the summer, in the northern hemisphere, the solstice is still celebrated widely. Generally, the farther north the location, the more important the solstice becomes. In places within the Arctic Circle, such as Alaska and Iceland, special events are held such as midnight baseball games or multi-day-long music festivals in the 24-hour daylight. But solstice celebrations have a deep history all over the world. In the Scandinavian countries of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Finland, there is the Midsummer Festival, which has close ties to fertility rituals. In Poland, single women would make wreaths and float them down the river, where single men would pick them up, believing the longest day of the year would bring them long-lasting love. The Chinese historically celebrate the summer solstice even though the Chinese calendar is a lunar one. But the boat racing often held within close proximity of the solstice makes it a midsummer tradition and is tied to an ancient legend. The summer solstice is also cause for the Chinese celebration of femininity and the earth, the yin forces associated with the Taitu symbol. The most noticeable aspect of the summer solstice is how shadows nearly disappear at noon on that day in more tropical regions because the sun has finally reached the highest point in the sky, stopping its growth at the highest zenith for one day 
before each day becomes imperceptibly shorter than the last and casting longer and longer shadows at noon. This time on the summer solstice is referred to as the subsolar point, or Lahaina Noon in Hawaii, and I've shared a picture of what that looks like, and if you haven't seen it, at the very least look it up, because it is a pretty cool phenomenon. It almost makes things look photoshopped, because things naturally have at least some shadow all the time. Anyway, this has made the summer solstice noticeable all the way back to ancient times. Even Eratosthenes used the summer solstice to make his prediction of the circumference of the earth. But the solstice changed people's behaviors as well. In Europe, certain plants were believed to have magical properties on the summer solstice. In the Americas, some Native Americans celebrate with a sun dance, and as the new Julian calendar was rolled out in Rome, the summer solstice was celebrated without interruption with the festival of Vestalia, the one day married women could enter the temples of the sacred Vestal Virgins and pay tribute to the goddess of Vesta, who ruled over hearth and home. The ancient Greeks before them had their own midsummer festival, known as Cronia, in celebration of the titan Cronus, keeper of the grain harvest and his symbolic sickle. During Cronia, Greeks would celebrate with common festivities such as feasts and games, but Cronia also came with a more unusual tradition. Slaves were invited to dine with their masters as equals. For some, it went even further, where masters served their slaves and slaves were able to whip their masters without consequence. The full reason why the summer solstice brought about such a strange role reversal in Greek society is not known but it likely related to the symbolic meaning of the ancient titan for whom the festival is named for, Cronus. It was a commonly held belief that before the age of Zeus, there was a long golden age of peace and prosperity that was reigned over by Cronus. The sickle is most famously associated with Cronus's castration of his father and subsequent rise to power. But the more common connection was as a harvester of cereals and grains. This era where Cronus was known for his peace and bounty was reminiscent of a simpler time that shares similarities with the idyllic Garden of Eden a time before civilization and social hierarchy that was filled with bounty. For the Greeks, it was farming which provided this bounty. In essence, the plentiful amount of food harvested each year was the gift of Cronus. During Cronia, the Greeks celebrated their common human history. This idyllic time before the civil rules that held society together were made by forgetting 
the social hierarchy on the summer solstice. Slaves would wreak havoc across Greece without accountability, and it was largely accepted as part of the festivities by everyone. It's celebrations like Cronia that really show the difference between the people of antiquity and the more modern version of ourselves. What sort of relationship did slaves and masters have that could allow this sort of ritual to go on without rebellion or war sparking up? It's no doubt that the owner of chattel slaves in the 19th century or modern human traffickers would ever consider such an activity with their slaves. Cronia demonstrates a human connection that is more difficult to find in people today, and yet these ancient Greeks could also be as ruthless as the most savage barbarians. To allow slaves to take such power, even symbolically, perhaps worked as a reminder to why they can no longer live in the simpler times of Cronus. Cronia may have served as a reminder as to what happens when they don't uphold the system that they've built as an agricultural society. What happens when they allow their slaves too much freedom? And what happens in a society not fastened with hierarchical order? The Romans, in true Roman form, lifted the Greek festival of Cronia and melded it into their own culture. Already having Vestalia to celebrate for the summer solstice, the Romans had to find a new time to celebrate Cronia, so they settled on the winter solstice instead and called it Saturnalia, the Roman name for Cronus being Saturn. Extended to a full week, Saturnalia kept the master and slave role reversal concepts of Cronia alive. Dice were rolled to determine which of the servants would rule, and the wealthy were expected to switch clothes with them and pay the debts of the poor. Businesses were closed down, and small gifts of birds, dolls, and candles were given amongst each other. Lighting the candles, singing, feasting, and drinking made the late December holiday the most anticipated event of the year. If this sounds a lot like Christmas, it should. While the celebration of Christ's birth did not derive from Saturnalia, the date to celebrate Christmas, December 25th, was likely selected by Christian leaders to fall on the final and biggest day of Saturnalia, where people were already in a celebratory mood. Christianity gained popularity at the height of the Roman Empire, and the excitement during Saturnalia would have been well known. In a clever public relations move, Christians chose a date to commemorate Jesus' birthday that would have already been the height of Saturnalia's celebration. Over time, Saturnalia ceased to exist, but 
Many of the midwinter traditions celebrated during Saturnalia and Cronia were once again made to fit like a well-worn dress onto the more modern holiday of Christmas. Christmas kept the Saturnalia traditions of gift-giving, singing, feasting, and lighting of candles while continuing to absorb other winter solstice traditions when it reached northern Europe, making it a sort of super-winter solstice holiday. The Yule Feast of the Scandinavians, celebrated over the course of their 12 days, is just one example of solstice festivities that were co-opted into Christianity. Christianity and the winter solstice traditions of Europe are so intertwined that it's difficult to tell where one begins and the other ends. The winter solstice triggers just as many celebrations as the summer solstice in places far beyond Europe and the reach of Christianity. China, Iran, Japan, and Native Americans have all celebrated this annual event with just as much fervor as the summer solstice. Around the world, the winter solstice often represents the triumph of light over darkness because it is the day where the darkness finally stops creeping in and six months of lengthening days finally begins. The darkest day of the year is rooted in the psyche of all cultures. Just as important as the longest and shortest days of the year are the days equidistant between them, the equinoxes, which take place twice a year in September and March for the entire planet at the same time. The equinoxes are the great unifier, bathing the entire planet equally in almost perfect 12 hours of day and night. While it hardly differs from any other day of the year near the equator, the equinoxes are dramatic days in the far-flung regions of the poles, each March and September signifies either the first day of sunlight in six months or the last day. The equinoxes are the only two days of the year where both poles receive sunlight on the same day and get an equal amount as the rest of the planet. In an instant, the sun forsakes one pole for the other. And so it remains for exactly half a year before the switch happens again. Equinoxes are also the standard marker we use to welcome the official spring and fall, just as the summer and winter solstice are the official markers for the beginning of their namesake season, although not every culture subscribes to this view of the seasons. But what is often shared across cultures about the equinoxes are the myths that persist relating to them. The ideas that at exactly noon you can stand a raw egg up precisely, balance things easier, or that no matter where on earth you stand you'll have no shadow are all common myths that are still regularly believed about the equinoxes. 
There is even a false belief that it can cause emotional dysregulation. Beyond the myths, these astronomical events can't help but impact us in deep and existential ways. Just like the solstices, the equinoxes have historical festivals and events associated with them. In Iran, the spring equinox has been associated with a new year for over 3,000 years, having its roots in the ancient religion of Zoroastrianism of the Median Empire. Japanese Buddhists celebrate Higan during both equinoxes, paying homage to those who had died. Hindu and Chinese celebrations also occur around the autumn equinox. It's important to remember that while the southern and northern hemispheres share the same equinoxes, their meaning is flipped. While March is the spring equinox in the northern hemisphere, it is the autumn equinox for the southern hemisphere. The solstices and equinoxes are associated with some of the oldest and most important structures in archaeological history. The Mayan Steppe Pyramid of El Castillo has 91 steps on each of its sides, and when including the top platform, the steps around the pyramid number 365. And with the approach of the spring equinox, the light strikes off of the intricate designs of the northwest corner of El Castillo and creates a light and shadow effect that looks like a serpent slithering down the stairs of the pyramid. While some debate surrounds this roughly 1,000-year-old equinoctial phenomenon, it's very likely that this was an intended effect. The Chaco Canyon site in New Mexico was home to the Pueblos, who had giant stone slabs channel light for important celestial events of the solstices, equinoxes, and the moon. In Egypt, standing at the terrace of the Sphinx on the summer solstice, you can still watch the sun set directly between the Great Pyramids of Khufu and Khafre, reproducing the famous Egyptian symbol of Akhet, 4,500 years after their construction. And then, during both the spring and autumn equinoxes, the sun sets on the shoulder of the giant sphinx. Even more ancient sites recognizing the solstices and equinoxes include the 5,000-year-old tombs at Newgrange in Ireland and Mays Howe in Scotland, where light shines deliberately into the tombs on the winter solstice. Most famously, the 5,000-year-old megastructure of Stonehenge in England still tracks these recurring celestial events with the same accuracy that it did when it was built, still remaining a destination for spirituality and scientific journeys today. The lunar pits at Warren Field in Scotland prove that people have tracked the winter solstice for at least 10,000 years, 
twice as old as Stonehenge. But it appears that people have found significance in these cosmic signs for far longer than that. Perhaps the oldest proof of humans recognizing the importance of the solstice is the famous cave in Lascaux, France, that humans have visited as far back as 17,000 to 19,000 years ago, nearly 10 millennia before the pits at Warren Field were created or the earliest Kiffian settlements of the humid Sahara. No matter how far back we go, the dunes of time continue to unearth even more ancient clues that both enlighten and perplex us. Lascaux Cave is known for its well-preserved art filled with over 2,000 paintings and engravings. The cave is considered one of the oldest prized archaeological sites on the planet, giving us the briefest glimpse into the ancient past of humanity, and has been the subject of many archaeological documentaries and historical textbooks. Although a landslide had partially blocked the entrance of the cave, it's still clear that it was a special location to these humans deep in our past. When the sun gently sets over the French fields and forests during the summer solstice, the cave's entrance becomes flooded with sunlight that dives deep into the cave. It's evidence that even these people, nearly 20,000 years removed from us today, understood the fundamental clock of the universe and celebrated it with a special location that, when visited 20 millennia into the future, could still be understood to us as sacred ground. Chapter 3 Part 4 Cosmic Easter when Sausagines brought the old Egyptian calendar to Caesar, the concepts of aligning it to those four critical days, the solstices and the equinoxes, were integral. And every culture had their own solution on how to do it. The difference this time was that Caesar had the power to implement it across an empire that would have consequences that echoed across millennia. But for as accurate as the new Julian calendar was, it still was not perfect. Something was still wrong. Slowly but surely, Throughout the centuries, the Julian year continued to drift from those seasonal pins of the equinoxes and solstices, despite the ingenious leap year, and no one could figure out how to fix it. The calendar was drifting again, and it was this drift of time away from the equinoxes specifically the vernal or spring equinox, that was bothering the powerful 16th century Catholic Church. 
and they decided that something finally needed to be done about it. But the task would not be easy. This was a new era where scholars using mathematics to discern truths of the universe rubbed up uncomfortably against the insecurity of a Catholic church who preferred obedience over revelation. For 1,000 years, the Middle Ages of Europe had scant participated in the revolutionary scientific advancement of humanity as the power of the papacy reigned supreme over the continent. The sway of the Catholic Church had been so powerful for so long that the language that Christianity was born under, Latin, was replaced by dozens of new languages whose speakers no longer could read or speak the ancient tongue. The Church kept the language alive in their Bible knowing any change in language would suffer the inevitable impurities of translations, and they only taught it to those monks, priests, bishops, and cardinals that served God. Understanding the machinations of the universe was considered banal at the best of times under the Catholic Church, and heretical at the worst unnecessarily prying into the business of the Lord. But times were changing across Europe during the 16th century, and the Protestant Reformation had been the largest challenge to Catholicism yet. People began questioning God, translating the Bible, pushing back on the corruption of the Church, and embracing science. While the Catholic Church's power was still unprecedented, it now had to contend with science more directly than ever before. Most famously, Galileo's refusal to put faith before facts in the 16th and 17th century caused the Catholic Church to put him under house arrest for the remainder of his life. Despite the Catholic Church's attempt at suppressing science and the study of the universe, they desperately needed someone who had dedicated themselves to it. By the 16th century, even the Pope questioned whether they were following the will of God anymore. To the Pope, the real problem was that Easter was not being celebrated on the right day anymore due to the slippage of the Julian calendar from the seasons. With each century that passed, the problem of the calendar slipping was pushed on to the next generation, with no clear solution, a game well understood by the people of antiquity. And the general discouragement of scientific understanding by the Catholic Church was only one example of how the Church sabotaged the ability to solve their own problem. At one point, even Galileo's opinion was solicited on the topic of finding a way to fix the dates of the calendar so it would once again match with the equinoxes and solstices and 
even Galileo concluded that there were still too many unknown variables to make any meaningful changes to the Julian calendar. It seemed the Julian calendar, with its irritating and subtle problems, would need to continue to persist as being good enough as they helplessly watched the seasons continue to slowly slip out of alignment. While most other Western or Christian holidays tended to fall on a specific date every year, it is only Easter that has a wide variability in dates falling anywhere between March 22nd and April 25th. So, why is this? It turns out that the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century interestingly chose the date of Easter based on a combination of both the solar and lunar calendars to ensure it was properly celebrated by the celestial calendar. Easter is commonly considered to be the most sacred holiday of the Christian calendar, and the Council of Nicaea decided with foresight to fix Easter based on the sun and the moon to ensure that it wouldn't fall prey to human fallibility. Regarding the solar calendar, Easter always is to take place after the vernal equinox. Regarding the lunar calendar, Easter always is to take place on the first Sunday after the first full moon that occurs on or after the vernal equinox. In this way, the Council of Nicaea fixed the holiday to the sky. So, every year on the first Sunday after the full moon that occurred on or after the spring equinox is the official day of Easter. But Still having to live by the Julian calendar for a millennium and a half after its implementation, the Catholic Church increasingly found itself in a more precarious position on what the actual correct day to celebrate Easter was, as the calendar year continued to slip its alignment from the seasons. And by the 16th century, it was already well known that more than one Easter had likely been celebrated on the wrong date. The decision made by the Council of Nicaea 1,200 years earlier was fading away under each pope's successive watch with nary a solution from Europe's brightest and most devout minds. It's not that nobody tried. There were attempts to solve it. But every single one, over the course of centuries, could not improve on the Julian calendar brought forth by Sausagines and created in the forgotten era of antiquity. Aligning the calendar with the seasons was one of the most fundamental problems of humanity for all of its history, even after the Julian calendar was put into effect. One reason it was so difficult was because it was nearly impossible to coordinate the completely separate calendars of the lunar and solar cycles since 
they have no meaningful relationship to each other. The moon's tidally locked orbit around the Earth does not in any direct way relate to how long it takes for the Earth to travel around the Sun. Precise mathematics about the two separate orbits over the course of millennia needed to be accurately recorded and interpreted to understand how to create the ultimate calendar. It required the work of many observers who lived and died never knowing the answer to give us something that can be found instantaneously on the internet today with absolutely no fanfare. So how accurate was the Julian calendar that it could not find a better replacement for over 1,500 years? It was the calendar that was used by both the First Council of Nicaea in 325 CE and Columbus when he landed in the Americas in 1492, spanning the entirety of the Middle Ages and the tail end of antiquity. The calculations behind the Julian calendar changed the year from being off by days, as it was during the time of antiquity, to being off by a mere 11 minutes thousands of years before the full precision of the Earth and Moon's orbits were truly known. This is especially impressive knowing that there was a lot of bad data out there that was considered reliable and might have really knocked off the year by much longer than 11 minutes. But as truly amazing of an accomplishment that this was, the problem of the Julian calendar being behind by 11 minutes was still unresolved. The fly in the Julian ointment was that the calendar had too many leap years, adding too many days to the calendar, enough to bring the calendar year back by an average of 11 minutes annually. This means that when the official date of Easter was calculated at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Julian calendar had only fallen behind roughly two to three days, which was not significant to them, but already it was well on the way to a future problem. By the 16th century, the drift had slipped by upwards of 10 days from the original implementation of the Julian calendar by Sausagines and made determining the official date of Easter that much harder. Pope Gregory XIII convened his own commission to discuss an update to the calendar but he was certainly not the first to attempt this fruitless feat. He was aware that all previous attempts had failed, and that there was little reason to expect any success this time, which is probably why we today know so little about the commission that ultimately did approve and implement the Julian calendar's replacement the Gregorian calendar. Pope Gregory XIII's commission was not guaranteed to be successful. 
he succeeded Pope Pius V, who had published a replacement to the Julian calendar that was even more inaccurate and was subsequently reverted back to the Julian. The likelihood for error of Gregory's commission was also high. Anyone who thought that they could solve the age-old mystery of the calendar was welcome to present their case to the Pope. But the commission was not going to be friendly to weak solutions, as many who sat on the commission had their own proposals to present themselves. The respected and well-connected members of the Gregorian Commission recognized that this could be their chance to be the Sausagines of their age, and they could be remembered for centuries to come. So, when a man named Antonio Lilius approached Pope Gregory XIII with a new calendar, it at first seemed unlikely to succeed the harsh critique of the 1575 commission. Antonio was a doctor, not an astronomer or a mathematician, and he put forth a calendar that competed with some of the church's best astronomers and mathematicians of the day. It is a wonder that the Pope even considered Lilius's submission at all. But the Lilian plan brought forth by Antonio ended up being the commission's most compelling of at least six other competing plans, which must have truly made it a wonder to behold. And Antonio had not created this calendar reform idea on his own, but rather brought it to the Pope in the stead of his brother, Aloysius Lilius, physician, astronomer, and mathematician. Aloysius's calendar was the dark horse submission of the commission, as he was not well known and did not stand among the church's wisest leaders on the matter. Instead, he lived a relatively obscure life, with little that has survived the following centuries to remember him by. Yet, it was from the mind of this forgotten man that the commission had found themselves truly considering a replacement to the Julian calendar. Despite its accuracy and attention to detail, Lilius's replacement to the Julian calendar was not guaranteed to succeed. As in the past, ambition, pride, and inaccurate information brought criticism to Aloysius's plan. While it may have been that Aloysius was still alive when his brother initially presented his plan to the Pope, it seems that Aloysius died before or during the ten long years of the commission deciding on the matter. So Aloysius could not even defend his proposal from the accusations of others. One member of the commission outright dismissed it. Another took possession of the Lillian plan to, as he called it, correct its errors, but turned out to be using it instead to create his own calendar, 
which he proposed, but was subsequently rejected on the grounds of its inaccuracies. And that's in spite of having full access to the Lillian plan for months. It seemed that it would take nothing less than the grace of God to have Aloysius's equations overcome the insurmountable obstacle of human vanity that shrouded the highest levels of the Catholic Church. But instead of God's grace, all it took was some brilliant mathematics and a loyal brother to see Lilius's proposal through. Since the approval of the Lilian calendar, nearly everything has been lost on it, from Lilius's original proposal, to Antonio's unpublished book on the calendar, to nearly all of the discussions regarding it during the official 10-year commission. What did survive from the commission was their final recommendation, to use the Lilian calendar as the new perpetual calendar, shelving the Julian calendar for good. Intriguingly, to this day, there are no known special records that Aloysius Lilius had access to in order for him to reach the mathematical conclusions that he did to make the most accurate calendar in centuries. Like Thales' prediction of the 585 BCE eclipse, it's not understood how Lilius was able to do what he did with what was available to him. Even more astonishing is that Lilius's solutions had a level of parsimony to them that were simple and easy to understand especially when in comparison to other potential calendar replacements. Whatever method Lilius used, he was able to bring the inaccuracies of the Julian calendar down from being 11 minutes off to within 30 seconds. How he was able to do this still baffles scientific historians, because his life likely ended when Galileo was still in his 20s, and over a decade before the invention of the modern decimal system, which could have been a crucial component for determining mathematical accuracies. The year is not just an even 365 days, but has an additional 5 hours and 49 minutes attached to it, which, if not accounted for, will make the calendar fall behind nearly 6 hours every year. Sausagines was able to find and provide a formula for leap years to correct this, but his 11 erroneous minutes had added up to over 10 lost days by the time of Lilius. Lilius needed to get as accurate an understanding of the length of the year as possible so he could make a more accurate formula for leap years, therefore keeping the calendar year largely consistent. And 
what Lilius determined was remarkably simple for a problem that had been dogging humanity since time immemorial. In short, Lilius determined that a leap year should only occur in those years divisible by four, unless the year can be evenly divided by 100. Then, even if it is divisible by four, it is not a leap year. But the final exception to this rule was that if the year is also evenly divisible by 400, then it is a leap year, despite being divisible by 100. While at first it might take a minute for the mind to grasp, the overall solution is actually quite elegant. It was this elegance, coupled with this mysterious source of highly accurate data, that brought Lilius to create such a successful calendar algorithm. Theories abound on how Lilius was able to determine the length of the year with such accuracy with no known sources. One theory suggests that Lilius used a famous set of Spanish astronomical data, known as the Alphonsine Tables, from the 13th century, which placed the length of the year within 31 seconds of accuracy. But there is no known evidence to know that Lilius had access to this. A 10th century Arab astronomer named Al-Batani, who lived 600 years before Lilius, was able to calculate the length of the year to within 21 seconds using the mathematics of trigonometry embraced by the erudite Arabs of the age. Al-Batani's mathematical precision was so accurate that it commanded the respect of Christian Europeans for several centuries, and in 1537, his book was published in Europe, which also included astronomical tables, when Lilius would have been about 27 years old. It's likely that the man who brought us the modern calendar would have gotten a hold of a copy of Al-Batani's book and studied it, but it's unlikely that Al-Batani's calculations were the inspiration for Lilius, despite their accuracy, as Al-Batani's calculations put him 21 seconds too short of a full year and Lilius's calculations put him too long by 27 seconds. There is a roughly 48-second difference between the two men's calculations, making it a wide enough gap to likely rule out Al-Batani's data as the source. Around the year 1100, an astronomer named Omar Khayyam in Persia the very land controlled by the Medes over a thousand years earlier, may have been the most accurate of them all, having calculated the length of the year to within 20 seconds of accuracy. Khayyam's predictions were 500 years before Lilius, 
and had remained the most accurate prediction for centuries. While all of these astronomers had just as good or better calculations on the length of the year, none of them had a brother who had access to the Pope that forced the new calendar onto a continent at the cusp of Western expansion, with centuries of colonization laying just ahead. But it wasn't Lilius's calculations on the length of the year alone that made his new calendar genius. He also found a way to connect the lunar calendar to his new solar calendar. Before Lilius, the general belief was that it took roughly 19 lunar years to match with the seasons again, the metonic cycle. But just as the Julian calendar was slipping from the solstices and the equinoxes, the metonic cycle was also noticeably slipping. With true mathematical skill, Lilius was able to find a way to align the lunar year with the solar year, thus fixing two problems at once, which caused his calendar to survive the grueling gauntlet of the decade-long Gregorian Commission. When Pope Gregory XIII released the new calendar, Lilius's calculations were revered for the precision that countless ancient scholars had only dreamed of making, and it gave Pope Gregory XIII the solution he desired. The new scientific calculations of Lilius had fixed the cosmically aligned Easter to where the leaders of the Council of Nicaea had intended. Just after the full moon that comes after the vernal equinox, which bathes the world in exactly half daylight and night, the Earth silently passes a point in space that is sacred to the Christian people of Earth. And as the Earth does its dance around the sun, this important day could be pinpointed from a vast distance deep in space provided the Earth could be seen with a good enough telescope, and there would be no need to know the slightest information about whatever human calendar was being used on Earth. Lilius was able to fix the date of the spring equinox to about the 21st of March, give or take a few days in either direction, so Easter can be celebrated after the spring equinox. Then, if the first full moon of spring, known as the Pink Moon or the Paschal Moon, falls on a Sunday, Easter is to be celebrated the following Sunday. Lilius's calendar created the simplicity and the accuracy needed to determine this date to be in accordance with a 1,200-year-old edict, the advancement of science being a mere secondary benefit to the papacy. The calendar created by Aloysius Lilius was implemented in the year 1582, and the Pope immediately declared it the official calendar in all of the countries that adhered to Catholicism. A 
unique problem came with implementing Lilius's new calendar, though. The 10 missing days that had lagged out due to the errors of the Julian calendar. Lilius recommended to take the 10-day hit all at once and realign the calendar immediately. This was the decision with the biggest impact to the average Catholic European living under the regime change from the old Julian calendar to the new Gregorian one. Protestant countries scoffed at this new implementation, chalking it up to a scheme for control by the Catholic Church, and refused to implement the change to the new calendar, with some stubborn countries taking centuries to agree to it. Great Britain was one of the longest holdouts, not joining the new calendar until the year 1752. 170 years after its initial implementation. Benjamin Franklin, living in the British colony of Pennsylvania at the time, coyly wrote, quote, It is pleasant for an old man to be able to go to bed on September 2nd and not have to get up until September 14th, end quote, which would have been the following day. Other countries adopted the calendar even later, ironically enough, Egypt being among them, who did not switch over until 1875. And they weren't even the last ones to implement it. Bulgaria waited until 1916, and Estonia and Russia waited until 1918, 336 years late. This Disconnect from the Gregorian calendar caused Russia to be 12 days late to the 1908 Olympics. Lilius's new calendar was named for Pope Gregory XIII, who commissioned and implemented the change. And so, forever after, it has been known as the Gregorian calendar. Like in the case of Sausagines, Lilius's work was named for the leader who implemented it, rather than the one who proposed it. It seems ironic for a man whose acute impact on our everyday lives through his mathematical brilliance that he would be nearly completely erased from history. There are no known images of Lilius, and aside from what few items have survived from the commission discussing his proposal and a scant letter written by him, almost nothing of substance remains of Lilius's life. But Lilius's mark is still left in some places on this earth. One thing that seems to be certain was that Lilius was, for a time, in the service of the Carafas, the ruling family in his hometown of Ciro, Italy. Ciro is poised along the coast of the Ionian Sea, near the sole of Italy's boot. At the highest point along this small seaside town is a castle that was built in the 11th century, but had been restored by the Carafa family during the life of Lilius. 
The improvements of the medieval castle made by the Carafa family have allowed the stronghold to exist into the modern day. Today, the castle is in need of some serious restoration again. But as long as it continues to stand, it remains a physical touchstone to the life of Aloysius Lilius. Mysterious carvings made into the floor of the atrium are said to be the work of Lilius, although nobody knows their meaning. Attempts at connecting this mysterious work to his calendar have been made, but nothing has been substantiated as far as I could find, just leaving us with another Lilius enigma. Even more, Every August 30th, a ray of light shines in through the nearby belfry and hits the very center of the Lillian design, just like the special ancient structures built to capture the light of the solstices and the equinoxes in the monuments of old. But why August 30th? And what is the purpose and meaning of this engraving that covers the entire floor? And what was Lilius's relationship to the castle? It seems that Lilius would likely have been too young to have contributed to the reconstruction effort beyond his engraving of the floor, which only took place afterwards. So it makes one wonder who designed a castle to have light from the nearby belfry hit the center of the atrium on August 30th. Even more peculiar is the fact that the Carafa Castle has 365 total rooms, again, something that would have been built before Lilius's time. So the man who gave us the modern calendar engraved mysterious symbols in a castle with as many rooms as a year has days. There hints an appreciation of the universe within the origins of the Carafa castle, and maybe even the Carafa family. The Carafa family was closely tied to the Catholic Church, and supplied a variety of cardinals to its ranks, including even a pope, Paul IV, who ruled the church in the 1550s, only a couple of decades before Pope Gregory XIII. However, which Carafa was most associated with Aloysius Lilius and the Carafa castle are not as easily able to be determined. The Carafa family appeared to be of the few within the Catholic Church that appreciated the secrets of the universe and built a physical monument to them in the form of the Carafa castle, ultimately allowing Aloysius Lilius himself to carve a design upon the atrium floor. Today, as Carafa Castle continues to succumb to the elements, consider it another testament to how scientific and intellectual work can far outlast that of the physical world, as the parable of Thales and the Olive Press suggests. Lilius may be gone, 
Carafa Castle may soon be gone, but the Gregorian calendar will remain because it is the framework of the most modern calendar on Earth. Lilius, like Sosagenes, Eratosthenes, Thales, and the countless other mathematicians and astronomers before him, must have been driven by something more than merely an accurate date to celebrate Easter, but instead an inherent desire to understand the universe in which we live without projecting out onto it what they wished it to be. These men were listeners in a world of people primarily focused on talking. Lilius was driven by an immovable truth that no human decree could erase, just as Galileo was driven by the truth of the heliocentric model of the solar system. They did not conjure up inaccurate information like the members of the Gregorian Commission did. They found an immutable truth, woven into the language of the universe. They had set the foundations for modern astronomy. Today, astrophotography of the night sky demonstrates a new perspective on seeing the universe. Cameras and videos capture the Earth's dizzying spin of the star trails in the sky that can exceed over a thousand miles per hour around the equator, but slow to a crawl near the poles. Some pictures and videos use a long exposure to capture the star trails, but, of course, it is the Earth that is moving, not the stars. Other astrophotography videos move with the Earth, showing how the sky remains still and demonstrating the speed at which the Earth is spinning. Each day, the sun rises and blinds our view of space, momentarily allowing us to forget the vastness of the universe beyond the bright blue sky. But just as quickly, we're plunged back into our own shadow and once again, we're pointed into the void of our existence. This is our dizzying dance that we experience daily, and it is both miraculous and unremarkable all at the same time. And as we spin wildly through space, the Earth moves at a breakneck speed of 67,000 miles per hour nearly 65,000 miles per hour faster than the Earth's fastest plane. In the course of a full 24-hour day, the Earth has barreled through 1.6 million miles of space. And by the time the Earth has reached a full revolution around the Sun, the Earth has traveled over 586 million miles in the 365 days, 5 hours, and 49 minutes that make up a full year. If a person lives to the age of 80 years, that means they have joined the Earth's journey for nearly 47 billion miles before disappearing out of existence forever. 
these truths of the universe are only known to us today thanks to those who dared to listen to rather than dictate how the earth and universe truly behave. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.